Okay, let me start with a survey because I just want to get to know you. Um, are you a glasses half full or glasses half empty kind of person? Um, who here thinks the glass is always half full? You're generally the optimist. Let me see, let me see. More than half. I tend to, being a cynic, I tend to think you're lying. Now, <laughs> now who, who here is the glass is half empty? Yeah, I'm probably closer to that, but I'm not. I'm going to take a third tack. I think if the glass is half full, it is by definition also half empty. I'm a both-and kind of guy. Um, I have to acknowledge that I've had it easy. I mean, if I just look at my life in general, I've had it easy. I live a blessed life. I've had good family, good background. Uh, Whether it be grandparents, I've had steady jobs. I've been well provided for. I have a good marriage. I have good sons. I have very little to complain about. And in the Old Testament language, we would say the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. As God has marked out my boundaries. I've got it good. But there is something in me that finds life very tiring. The smallest little disappointments and such can really set me off, and they take a toll on me. And I know I'm identifying myself kind of as a wimp there this morning because such little things can really drain me and set me off, and, and they just take a toll. Um, that's okay. I can say I'm a wimp on a day I'm wearing a pink shirt, right? <laughs> right? Actually, I did this for my wife. She bought this, and she says it looks good. So, I find life very trying, even though, for me, it really has not been. Now, I know this is due to my sin. You know, God intends things for my good, and yet I complain. Um, So it's my sin, but I also believe it's this life between the ages. Those of you who were here last week heard Pastor Osborne talk about living this life between the ages, where Christ has come, and the kingdom is real, and you, in fact, are a part of the kingdom, because Christ has saved you and brought you to himself, presented you before the Father in the throne room, in a sense. And so the kingdom in its reality is true, but it's not yet in its fullness. And so we do live this life with some sense of disappointments. It's a mixed bag. And that's, that's, one of the thing, that's what I wanted to start off pointing out this morning. We live in this already and not yet, and life is a mixed bag. And I think that's how it's intended to be, because this life here is not yet the end. And so we should not be surprised if it just doesn't fit you well. I know it doesn't always fit me well. I feel out of place at times. But I can honestly say that though I am frustrated and disappointed, I have not suffered, and I do not suffer for my faith. The biggest struggle I have for my faith is just simply trying to apply the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, because that's part of the summary of the law that Jesus gave us, is it not? You know, love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But what stinks is that they don't do that to you. (laughs) So you end up trying to be the good person, trying to be the nice person, only to really kind of take it in the teeth once in a while. That's the most I've suffered from my faith. But that's probably not true for somebody here. Many of you have suffered more. Some of you have suffered specifically for your faith. Glenn mentioned in his prayer that there are many around the world now suffering for their faith. And a few weeks ago, we saw this in the community college in Oregon where people suffered for their faith. And the bravest people in that classroom that day were the people after the first one was shot who still were asked to bear witness to their faith. I don't know. If I'm going to be honest, I don't know where I would be. I'd like to think the grace of God will be sufficient for me in those times, but (laughs) I'm not sufficient for those times. 
Okay, so I have not suffered for my faith, but many have. And that brings us a little bit to our text. There's, there's, it's hard to make a comparison there. We come to the book of Hebrews. We, know, we don't know as much about the book of Hebrews as we know about others. We don't know who wrote it, although we have a pretty good idea it was an associate of Paul. Um, it is somehow an affiliation with Paul. We don't know exactly who received it or where they were, possibly in Rome, most likely Jewish Christians of the Hellenistic persuasion. But for one reason or another, they're, they're in danger. I don't mean a physical danger, a danger of maybe turning back, a danger of not standing firm in their faith. Um, we see two problems in the text of Hebrews. One, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says that we must pay much closer attention to the salvation that we have received, lest we drift. They're in danger of a spiritual lethargy. And I can't help but think that a spiritual lethargy leads to the second problem, and that's in danger of turning back. Now face it, if they came out of a Jewish background, and now they have become Christians... Jews, or the Jewish religion, was a protective religion in the, in the Roman Empire. Christianity was not. So to say, now I'm a Christian, you automatically would come under the oversight or a different way of the authorities looking at you. And so there might be a little bit of pressure. Secondly, though, since you came out of the Jewish community, which was fairly close-knit, you now become ostracized and separated. And I knew of several people in college who had come out of communist societies or whatever, and had, who, or Buddhism and this multi-generational family structure like in Asia where that's very important. And they come to faith and they begin attending a church and their families throw them out. And, and for anybody, young people, who know what it's like to put up with a little bit of peer pressure to go along with the crowd... You've got to have some sort of understanding how much pressure that can bring to bear. If everything you knew, everybody you used to hang out with, your very own family then throws you out, there's pressure. It'd be so easy to just turn back and be a Buddhist again or to be a Jew again or whatever it is. And I, like I said, I can't help but think spiritual lethargy, the first one, can lead to the second one. Because when we become lazy about the spiritual disciplines or the exercising of the common means of grace that God gives us for our own good, when we allow that lethargy to set in, we tend to drift. And before you know it, things become more serious. So, and I don't think these people in Hebrews are any different than us. There is something about their condition or their situation that is true to human nature. And yet the author comes along and says, but the way is forward. You know, if you want to step back into the Jewish faith, you need to remember that the things that came before pointed to what has now been accomplished. So there is, there is no going back. But he comes to them in this passage and says, the way is forward, not back. It reminds me of the people of, uh, of Israel when God had called them out of Egypt. And they weren't in the desert for very long, were they, before they started complaining. And I, I didn't look up the passage. I'm sure we're all familiar with it. But I remember specifically, oh, if only we were back in Egypt where we had meat in our pots. No kidding. Meat in our pots, they specifically said onions, leeks. You just get this campfire picture. You know, We're all just standing around having a good time now. We have meat in our pots. We have food. We're well fed. We're taken care of. We don't even have to wonder what we're going to do tomorrow morning because we all have jobs. No, you have chains on your necks. But when we look back, it looks so good. It looks so good. There was a song back in the 90s by Sarah Grove said, Painting Pictures of Egypt. And she's painting pictures of Egypt, leaving out what it lacked. Okay? The road is not back there. You're not seeing it clearly. The way is forward. The way is up ahead. And so in our passage, there really is only one main point. 
At the end of chapter 2, you see, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I'm sorry, at the end of verse 1. Now, grammatically, let us run with endurance is also tied to the phrase that came before it. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance. But the one is preparatory for the second one. So the exhortation here this morning is let us run with endurance. And that is the center of this passage. It means to run. That takes effort. To run with endurance. You are to picture more of a marathon rather than a sprint. This is something that takes a consistent, disciplined effort, lest we drift, lest we turn back. I want you to note that you're not alone in this. It says, let us run. We're going to consider in a few minutes this cloud of witnesses we are surrounded by, those who have gone before and set an example for us. So let us run. We're going to consider the example of Jesus who ran his race and received the promised gifts of the Father as he was enthroned on high. And it's also not a race of your own choosing, but one to which you have been called to. Now, how many have read Pilgrim's Progress? You ever read the kids' version? Yeah. If you haven't, you should. It's good. That's where that's you. Okay? God has already rescued you from the city of destruction. He has already rolled the weight of sin from off your back when you knelt at the foot of the cross. And he's pointing you. <laughs> forward to the celestial city. It's not a race of your own choosing, but it's a good race. It's one worthy of running. Now, as we consider this race, I'm not going to focus as much on the exhortation, except to say keep running. And we are given three words, three encouragements, instructions, however you want to list them. We're given three things. Other than the main point, keep running, I want you to remember that we are given examples to follow, obstacles to overcome, and a vision to maintain. Frank, did you get that? I said we have examples to follow, obstacles to avoid, and a vision to maintain. A sermon has to have structure. Examples to follow. Examples to follow. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. What witnesses? What witnesses? You go back to chapter 11, there is a whole listing of witnesses. This is often called the Hall of Fame of Faith. I really don't like that title, but you get the idea. In this cloud of witnesses in chapter 11, there are 17 individuals mentioned by name who persevered as looking to the unseen that is out ahead of them, as believing in the promises that God had made to them, and in spite of of the circumstances and surroundings, they kept on keeping on. They kept running. These 17 individuals all endured by planting their hopes firmly on the future fulfillment of the promises of God, though they received not the fullness of those promises in this life. Okay, but if God makes a promise, and in this life it does not seem to be fulfilled, then what must there be? There must be another lifetime or place where it will be fulfilled because God's word can't fail. And that is faith. Believing in the word of God, looking forward, not being distracted by what you see around you. And we are given all these examples of people who by faith did this, by faith did that. I'm only going to mention a couple of highlights because this isn't the text for us this morning, but you do remember the story of Moses. Moses thought God would bring deliverance for his people when he was 40 years old, and instead Moses got driven out of town. And for the next 40 years, Moses shepherded a bunch of sheep in the desert. And then when he's 80, God called him and said, now I'm sending you back and I'm going to deliver the people and you're going to lead them into the promised land. 
you're going to be my man to accomplish this great redemption. And so Moses goes back at the age of 80. And by the age of 120, Moses did not get to see the promised land. God had banned him from it. Moses did not receive in this life the promised fulfillment or the promised blessedness of God. But here's somebody who struggled from 40 to 80 to 120, and yet by faith persevered. He kept running. Abraham was 75 years old when he was told to leave his family and friends and go to the land I will show you. And God made him a two-pronged promise. He said, I'm going to give you a son, a descendant, and I'm going to give you land. And by the time Abraham was 100, 125 years later, he had one son. God said, I'll make your descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashores. And in 25 years at the age of 100, one son. Would that satisfy you? It would not me. And then, at the age of 137, finally Abraham purchased purchased, it wasn't given to him, purchased his first little plot of land in the promised land to bury a wife. And then by the age of 175, he saw a couple of his grandchildren reach the age of 15, and that's it. He died without having received the fullness of the promises of God, but believing that the word of God was true, he persevered. He kept on running the race he was called to. I want to read just a couple of verses in regards to Abraham. In chapter 11, verse 10, we see that he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And dropping down to 13, when it speaks of others who persevered by faith, it said, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, and if indeed they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And look down at 11 verse 26 for Moses. Considering the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. We see the common theme here, that it is belief in the future or the final or the complete fulfillment of the promises of God that caused these people to keep going. And I have to drop this in there. Down in 11 verse 38, I toyed with whether to throw this in just for the sake of time, but it has to be said, after a listing of anonymous people, a whole bunch of anonymous people who some conquered kingdoms, So they had it good. Some were cut in two. (laughs) They did not have it so good. But they are all characterized as men or people of whom the world was not worthy. I love that. I love it sometimes when you're reading on through the Bible, and it's not the main topic, but they drop in there these little contents that show you what really is true and important. And it's such a reversal of what the world says. When you see somebody put to death for being a nice person, do you consider them as worthy, as not worthy? You know, we tend to look down on them, dregs of society, right? These are people of whom the world was not worthy. I love that. It's not our main point, but we have to see it. Okay, so examples to follow. We are to look to those who have gone before us, that is to encourage us, and better yet, not to just look to them, but to look to the work of God in them, for they did not do this of their own. It was not in them to do this on their own. But let's look to this crowd who have gone before and let us also then keep running. Now, obstacles to avoid. Obstacles to avoid. We are given two 
obstacles to avoid. This is back in chapter 12, verse 1. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance. The ESV here says every weight. And then the sin which so easily entangles. Let's talk about encumbrance or weight first. The ESV uses the word weight, and that is the basic, basic idea of the word. It represents a weight. When the kids were younger, and even recently, we watch an animated movie called Mulan. Even cartoons can be good for adults. But the captain is training an army, and he shoots an arrow to the top of a pole, and then he calls out a man and says, get up there. Go retrieve the arrow. And right before the man screws up the courage and the grit to get ready to climb this pole, he says, now wait a minute, and he straps a bunch of heavy weights to the man's wrists to make it hard. It weighs him down. It makes the climbing of this pole, the completion of this race, impossible. Okay, that's the idea here of a weight. But there's more than that. So while the ESV gets the basic meaning of the word right, the NAS brings out the actual meaning and its contents, an encumbrance. Okay, other meanings that this word can, can point us to are fat, meaning excess fat, which is not good because we're talking in the language of athleticism here. And so athletes are supposed to trim down that they might perform better. So we are to get rid of the weight. We are to trim the fat. We are to put aside anything that would act as an impediment or a hindrance. And if you think of the track and field, you know, when, when, the, when the athletes show up, they don't show up dressed like they look when they go to run, do they? They show up usually carrying a bag. That would be an encumbrance in the race. They show up wearing a whole sweatsuit. You know, they have to go through a transformation. They have to strip down. They have to get rid of the excess in order to run well. And we are told to get rid of every encumbrance that would heed your progress. And these things can be good things. These don't have to be habits you shouldn't be involved with in the first place. These could be good things. Paul talks about marriage as some things that some people are to forego for the sake of service to the kingdom because when you're married, your interests are divided. Okay? I think most people are intended for marriage except those whom God gifts, but marriage can be a hindrance. Okay? Some things are good things, and it takes prayer to discern sometimes what it is we are to let go of, but there are things... <laughs> For me, and probably for most of us, that we could let go of that we might be able to run a little better. And lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles. The sin that entangles, the ESV, the sin that clings to. The sin, the sin. I don't know the sin. The sin sounds specific. And in true, in the language, the original, it does use this definite article, the sin. But the sin doesn't always have to be a specific sin. And I do think the context can be satisfied by saying sin in general. Especially since we don't know what is the particular sin of the Hebrews, except possibly unbelief, because that would be a root of all sin. We don't believe what God said. When God said, thou shalt not do this, that's okay. When God said, don't eat of the fruit, (laughs) and the snake shows up and says, no, 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 you can eat the fruit. Unbelief says, okay, I can eat the fruit. You know, you, you did not believe what God said. So the root sin could be unbelief or it could be a specific besetting sin. Many of us have one. Many of us have that sin that just grabs us and we can't let go of it. And here we're told to let go of it. Okay, it itself becomes an encumbrance. It holds you back. 
It weighs you down from all that God has for you. Is it really worth that? Learn to identify it. Pray for the discernment to see it with clear vision and let it go. The language here talks about throwing these things off like a garment, like that person on the track and field. Throw it off. Let go of what holds you back. Turn away from that sin. It's not worth it. It's not worth what it costs. It keeps you from running well. So why is it that we play so close to sin? Really, I mean, it's like, it's like flies to the light. We're drawn to it and it kills us. So put it away. Put it away and keep running. So we have examples to follow. We have obstacles to avoid. And now we have a vision to maintain. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the beginning of verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus is the NAS. Looking to Jesus is the ESV. Now, I'm going to go with the NAS on this one because I like it. (laughs) Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Both of these are participles, participial phrases, verbal adjectives. So they just simply modify your running. You're running with endurance. Okay, but while you're running, fixing your eyes on Jesus, like a horse with blinders on. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The idea is to look away from all else and focus your attention on Jesus. It goes on and tells us that Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, where he is. He has already run the race. In his humanity, by faith, he has run the race for the joy set before him. The Father has made him promises. He says, if you will, do my will, which the Son gladly and willingly gave himself to do. And so the Father gave him the reward that was promised. He raised him up from the dead. He's ascended on high and sits at the right hand of the Father and received from the Father the Holy Spirit, which he has poured out on his people. He has run the race. So in this sense, he is an even greater example than the ones that went before. There is, there is a real sense in which he is part of this cloud of witnesses that are surrounding us, but he is also the goal and the focus of our running. We are to look away from all else, fixing our eyes on Jesus. But he is so much more than the greatest example. Now I'm going to confess again my sinful human nature here. I look at these examples and I say, look at Abraham. Didn't he do good? Look at Moses. Didn't he do good? People like Jephthah, Samson. I mean, it goes through lists. And then a whole bunch of unnamed people. Look at what they did. Look at what Jesus did. Does that help you? Sort (laughs) of. But it leaves me wanting something else. So what? He did good. I'm not Abraham. Okay, God didn't speak to me. I didn't see him. I know he speaks in his word, but just go with me on this. I'm not Abraham. I'm not Moses. I sometimes read these stories of the people in the Old Testament, and I remember Sunday school where we slapped these faces up here on the flannel board and said, here, be like David. Wasn't he a good man? Be like Abraham. Look what he did. As if there was something in them to where they were able to screw up their resolve and believe strong enough so that they might maintain and persevere and achieve and gain the prize that God gave them. But there wasn't anything in them. 
There wasn't anything in them except the work of God. When it says that every time an individual is named in chapter 11, it says, by faith he did this. By faith he did this. By faith they accomplished this. By faith they suffered and yet remained faithful. By faith. We make a grave mistake if we think that that faith is something they produced. That faith is the work of God in them. And it's the work of God that caused them to persevere. So, so just looking at examples just doesn't work for me. But there is so much more. Right here, we skipped the phrase author and perfecter of faith. And this is huge to this passage. The NAS says author. The ESV says founder. One translator used the word pioneer because they were relating the author and perfecter of faith to the clause that comes behind it that talks about the journey or the race that Jesus ran. And so he led us in the way we are to go. There's some truth to that, yes. But the idea of author strikes the meaning of this word, I believe, better. And it is the idea of source, the idea of provider. That's why they combined it with author and perfecter. That makes a unit of its own. He is the source the provider, the giver, and the completer and finisher of faith. Faith comes from him, and faith is active and produces in you perseverance and endurance. There is something called the ordo salutis. Who's heard the phrase? Okay, it is a Latin term. Not all have heard it. It's huge. It's an important phrase. You've got to know it. It's one of those chicken or the egg questions. See, we started with the half is glass full, half empty. Now we're onto the chicken and the egg. This is progress. The chicken or the egg, which came first? Whoever says egg is wrong, but it's an important question. The same question here regarding your salvation. Which comes first, faith or regeneration? Faith or regeneration? Do we turn to God and say, save me? I believe you can save me if I just trust in you enough. And so then we are born again. No. No. That is absolutely unbiblical. What happens is, is God comes to someone like Abraham, who was a moon worshiper in a foreign land, who was living in darkness, and he calls out his name. And he works a work inside of the man, and he gives him a new heart. He takes what was stone and he makes it flesh. And then that man hears the voice of God and he believes and puts his trust in him. The regeneration, the new birth, the born again comes first so that your salvation does not begin until God acts. Until God acts. And then the one whom God calls to himself, one of the first fruits of the work of God is faith. And then faith produces fruits like love and joy and endurance. Faith perseveres. Faith produces fruits. So it is regeneration. It is being born again first that produces faith. David says in Psalm 51, I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I came into the world this way. Ephesians 2 says that the person in their sins, apart from God, is dead in his transgressions. Romans 3 tells us that there is no one righteous, no one understands, no one even seeks God left to himself. But God does a work. And when God does a work and calls a person to himself and sends forth his spirit to quicken them and make them alive, then they turn and they believe in God. And this faith produces endurance. It endures all things. 
It doesn't matter whether you have great victory or whether you suffer and are sawn in two. Faith endures all things. Faith that God has put there carries you to the end. And it is this faith that he has implanted in us. Dead men simply will not believe on their own. But men who have been born again do believe. And this God-given faith works the works of the redeemed in the redeemed. And the redeemed keep running. That, to me, is the heart of this passage. That is the thing that brings me comfort. Not follow this great example, because I can never live up. But if I recognize the work of God in my life, I will persevere. I will endure to the end. In this sense, faith is very similar to what Ephesians 1 says about the Spirit. The Spirit there is is the down payment, the earnest, the foretaste of your inheritance in heaven. So is faith. He is the spirit of faith. He works faith in the individuals. The fact that you trust God at all is actually a possession of the things to come. It is the kingdom in its now but not yet. It's a piece of it. And we find great comfort there. And we persevere, believing in the word of God. Not because somehow we've worked ourselves up to believe but because God has worked in it. So our earlier examples, they didn't strive to believe. It was faith working in them that persevered. And so they kept their eyes on the prize. And now Christ has come, and we do not struggle and strive to produce this faith, but we fix our eyes on him and we keep running. It is all the work of God in them, in us, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. So believers, church, Church of the living God who works in you, rejoice. If that doesn't lead to worship, I don't know what will. Rejoice in him who has called you and equipped you. He didn't call you and say, work it out the best you can. He does a work in you and he keeps you. Look to him who will not, does not, cannot lose any of his own, but keeps him to the end. And you who do not know God this morning... Today, if you hear him who calls, the one who calls sinners to himself, who gives life to the dead, the one who causes spiritual resurrection leading to eternal life, do not ignore this voice. Turn to him and be saved and then come. Come to Jesus and then come join with us and let us all keep running. Let's pray.